Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. As an investigative reporter, I wanted to know what was what really happened here. You know, how could it be that, you know, this case that seems pretty, on the face of it, so simple and had so many resources could not be solved? The part of the story that seems maybe the most compelling on its face, which is like the actual plot of what happened, is actually the part that interested us least. And um, in some ways, the bare minimum of details, because A, we didn't want to be exploitative, and B, it just wasn't what our story was about. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media makers. Today on the phone with me are Samara Freemark and Madeline Barron with American Public Media. Over the last few days, I've been enjoying their new podcast, In the Dark, a nine-episode look at the 27-year investigation into the abduction of Jacob Wetterling in rural Minnesota. Welcome, Madeline, Samara. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. We're really happy to be with you. Okay, well, cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm not lying when I, when I said, because actually I really don't lie on the podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I wasn't lying when I said that I've been really enjoying this podcast, because it has, it has been really kind of fascinating. I guess you'd call it a true crime sort of investigative podcast looking into you know, this abduction. And it's sort of a really fascinating case. Before we get too much further into it, can we sort of talk about the case itself so people can kind of have context of what it means for Minnesota? You know, why is it significant? Sure. So Jacob Wetterling was 1989. On October 22nd, he was 11 years old, and he lived in this small town called St. Joseph in central Minnesota. And one night he went with a friend of his and a brother of his so they're all 10 and 11, to the store. They just went for a bike ride at night, around 9 o'clock at night, to get a video on this dead-end road right into town, a really short bike ride. And on the way back, a man was in the middle of the road, and he stopped them, ordered all three boys into the ditch, asked them their ages, and then told the other two boys to run and to not look back or he'd shoot. And then he took Jacob, and Jacob had not been seen since since that moment. The two boys ran back home to the Wetterling's house, reported it right away to the police. The police got there right away, and this massive investigation began with the National Guard, the FBI, the State Crime Bureau, the Sheriff's Office, and it was one of the largest searches for any missing person in the history of the United States. So it was huge, and it went on for a long time, but it was not successful in, in finding Jacob. Okay, and I realized at the beginning of this I should have introduced each of you so people could you know, match the, the voice with the speaker. You're, you're of course, uh, Madeline, the reporter. Were you the person who sort of uh, came up with this story and sort of started driving it to, towards the podcast? Or you know, how did the podcast come about, I guess, is a better question. So I had heard about the Jacob Wetterling case and living in Minnesota, basically everyone has, but I hadn't done a whole lot of reading about it and didn't know the details. And then one day, um, more than a year ago or so, I was just curious and I was reading online about the case and I was surprised by some of the, the details or some of the most basic facts that Jacob was kidnapped on a dead end road, that police got there right away. There were witnesses. And so this crime that had always been portrayed as this mystery, this unsolvable mystery, you know, the details puzzled me. They didn't seem to line up with that story of it as a mystery. So what I was trying to do, the question of the story was, why 
did it take so long to solve the Jacob Wetterling case? Or, or what went wrong in this investigation? And what were the consequences of the failure to solve it, not only on the lives of Jacob's family and friends, but also on the lives of the community, people who, innocent people who got caught up in the investigation, and really the entire country? Because the Jacob Wetterling case is the case that led to a federal law that requires all states to have registries of sex offenders. And it was also one of these cases in the 80s that fueled the whole fear about, you know, what we call stranger danger, you know, that that parents should be worried about strange men jumping out of bushes and that children shouldn't really be allowed to play outside by themselves. So all of that was tied up in this case. And so as an investigative reporter, I wanted to know what was what really happened here? You know, how could it be that, you know, this case that seems pretty on the face of it so simple and had so many resources could not be solved? So that's what we were looking at. Yeah, it's interesting in your presentation of it. I mean, you pretty much, in describing the abduction, sort of laid out uh, almost, you know, the the first episode. And, and you know, from a storytelling standpoint, the you know, I, this is not to diminish the, you know, the nature of the abduction, the severity of, of the crime, but it's, it's it, from a storytelling t- technique, it's sort of a, like a MacGuffin, that this is, this is the thing that sort of, that starts the bigger story. And the bigger story is, why did this investigation take so long? And that seems to be really kind of what the meat of this this podcast is, which is really kind of fascinating. It has so many different aspects of it. Yeah, I mean, this is not, we didn't set out to do a kind of a traditional true crime story, you know, to tell a mystery, write a mystery novel or to like try to solve the case or pretend to be detectives. We were always looking at what did the investigators do? What did they do? What didn't they do? And what were the consequences of that? So, that was always our focus. And it's a question I don't think is asked often enough in a lot of these unsolved cases. I think it's very easy to get distracted and almost obsessed with the criminal and who the criminal might be and all of the disgusting details of what the criminal might have done to the exclusion of a really important question, which is, well, what is law enforcement doing? This is Samara. From a production standpoint, it's, it's sort of an interesting challenge because actually the part of the story that seems maybe the most compelling on its face, which is like the actual plot of what happened, is actually the part that interested us least. And um, in some ways, the bare minimum of details, um, because A, we didn't want to be exploitative, and B, it just wasn't what our story was about. Yeah, you can definitely see that. And, and it's, you know, at one point, I think it was in the first episode, uh, Madeline, where you you bring up the question about you know, oversight of law enforcement. They they hold on to this evidence, you know, a lot of times for very good reasons. They don't want to expose too much information that's going to be helpful to them in court. But, you know, what type of oversight is there for their process? I mean, you know, waiting 27 years to have a, a mystery solved like this where, you know, the person was still in the area and the police kind of suspected maybe it was him for so long that, you know, what what's the accounting in that? Right. And, you know, as reporters, that's the question that we're asking, you know, of, of powerful institutions and powerful people. You know, we're, we're looking at what what's the responsibility of the public and did they fulfill that responsibility or not? And in this case, you know, one of the challenges from a, a reporting perspective that you kind of mentioned is the investigative file. I mean, even now that there's a confession, the case file itself, you know, the in this case, hundreds of thousands, most likely of pages of paper. There's a whole room actually in the sheriff's office for it. Um, none of that's been released to the public. And so we were trying to figure out what went wrong in a case 
where we did not have the access to the file that you have in closed cases, you know, cases that have been resolved. So, you know, if, if you were doing a reporting on a wrongful conviction, you can go and get the file, you can look at it, you can read the detective's notes. In this case, we had to work from the outside to get to this really important question, you know, what is going on in an unsolved case? Like the very case that law enforcement is unsuccessful in solving seems like the one that would should be most deserving of scrutiny. Yeah. And the thing about this case in particular is that, you know, you were able to get so much information that was not in those files. You talked to a lot of people and it, it is amazing. It is amazing to me that in a, in a pre-internet era, in a pre, you know, mobile phone era that you have, a, you have a lot of older audio and, and video that you're able to pull stuff from. You're able to, you know, find a lot of, you know, witnesses that may or may not have been interviewed at the time. So, you know, tell me a little bit about that footwork and getting all this other material to help you tell, tell your story. Well, I can speak to some of the archival stuff. Luckily, there's, you know, the, the 80s, 1989, the, the early 90s, it's uh, squarely at a time when there was a lot of news coverage. And there was a ton of news coverage about the Jacob Wetterling case. And so finding that stuff you know, it's a lot of it's not posted online, so there was some digging for it in archives. A lot of it actually came from some of our sources, including the Wetterling family. I think Madeline can talk about this, but uh, there was some some digging in crawl spaces for old boxes full of VHS tapes. And in one case, too, the police chief's, uh, the former police chief's wife was over interviewing him, and she was sitting there as well. And she said, you know, now that you mention it, I think I might have a video that I made of all the old news coverage that I was actually planning to throw out like today or this week. And so she went away for a couple of minutes and she came back with this videotape that ended up having, I mean, she recorded everything of the early days, like all the stations, all of it on one tape. Yeah. And that stuff is really useful for the podcast in terms of production. I think it really helps place you in the scene, but also for facts. I mean, just knowing what was going on at the time. Um, I mean, of course, we did a clip review, and so we 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 went through all the newspapers as well. But um, being able to see some of that stuff on the way it was covered on TV and on radio, there was a lot of useful information as that in there as well. Yeah, you even had uh, clips of Geraldo when they were talking about the case, and the family was on it as well. Yes, yep. Geraldo. Yes. And the one that actually that I was just listening to was uh, that uh, the police had given the family a like a phone line that had a recorder on it, you know, and they had you know hours and hours of cassette tapes of people just calling and giving tips and all this information, you know, A, it informs the story, but it does so much in helping you with your storytelling as well. It's a pretty amazing, like an auditory uh, experience. Yeah. I mean, what we wanted to do is really, and what those tapes of these calls that were coming into the Wetterling house that they recorded allow us to do is to feel in the closest way that we can, which of course we never can entirely you know, like we're there, like we have a sense of, okay, if you're at the Wetterling's house and it's a couple of weeks after Jacob was kidnapped, what is this like? What? And to, so to be able to hear some of these calls that were coming in and to hear the way in which, you know, both of Jacob's parents, Patty and Jerry, would struggle with some of these calls, would have to write down all these details and would have to just process a tremendous amount of ultimately pointless information, but often really upsetting information was really helpful to just be able to hear that. And, you know, they, they had saved that stuff. They had, you know, they hadn't, you know, gone back over and over and listened to it, but they did have it saved. And so it was really helpful to us to be able to tell that part of the story. Yeah. Some of the, some of the recordings, a lot of, actually, a lot of the people who were calling were, you know, 
people who thought they had information they could pass on, people who had dreams or visions that, that they thought they knew where the, the child was. And then if you contrast that with interviews of the family and you, you start to feel, you know, what their experience is and, and go, wow, that, you know, how terrible that is that, you know, this, this incredibly painful thing in your life and you're trying to deal with it. And then all of these people who are calling you, they're trying to, you know, think they're trying to help you, but, and you're just trying to hold on to any straw of information that maybe that would be the, the key that's going to, going to solve this and get you your child back. It, it, it's really heartbreaking in many ways. Yeah. I hope, I hope we were able to convey that. I mean, just the, the onslaught of information coming to the Wetterlings and how they couldn't turn off that fire hose and how painful that was. In the podcast, we talk about trying to put yourself in, in their shoes and imagine having this phone in your house that is just ringing and you can't not pick up that phone because, like, you know the chance that useful information is coming through that line is vanishingly small, but it might. And so you're just stuck. You have to pick up. And so you have to listen to people saying this crazy stuff over and over again. It's a horrible position. So tell me about, you know, how long did this this sort of process take for you? You know, where did the idea come from? And, and you know, how did you, you know, plot this out? So about a year ago now or so, I, I was talking to Samara about this idea and she was interested in it. And then we went through a process of more than a month of, of like doing some initial research and pitching the stories to our editors and then, you know, doing enough initial reporting that we thought that this was worth some more exploration and then just went about months and months and months of reporting and research and through, you know, early, late 2015, all the way through, uh, really, we're still doing some reporting even now, and then started to see this take shape and see what the the full story was. Because, you know, when you do a longer project, you never know exactly what you're going to find. And so this story certainly did take some twists and turns along the way. And also, there turned out to be deeper problems that we were uncovering than we thought we might at the outset. In what respect? In in the way that the that law enforcement had uh, done the investigation, or or something else? In the investigation, but also the the broader other problems with other cases in Stearns County in the same sheriff's office that it wasn't just one case that they had failed to solve, or one big high profile case that they had failed to solve, and so providing doing that amount of research so that you can we can really tell what is a work of of investigative reporting about accountability and the sheriff's office. And, you know, what the public should expect versus what the public received and was told they were receiving in this case. And the impression I get from the first few episodes, these are not necessarily big, big cities. These are these are small towns or rural areas and that there were several of these types of incidences in communities that are even the same county. Right. And that from now, you know, our 2020 division looking back, we say, well, why didn't you link all of these things together? And so now. You're looking back 27 years later and trying to figure out, well, why weren't those connections made? Why weren't those people interviewed that maybe should have been? Yeah, and I, I, I actually would not give them quite that much of a pass. It's not hindsight that tells us these cases should be linked. I mean, they they were thinking of these some of these cases as potentially linked from the beginning. It was just a lot of the, I think, a lot of the basic police work it would take to sort of cement those links or make them into something useful maybe wasn't done. I mean, a lot of the failures that we found were really in this like basic policing 101 category of just going out and talking to people. And so a number of the the kids in this town of Painesville who had been assaulted or there was a man that was trying to assault boys in that area in the 80s, 
in a way that was similar in some ways to what happened to Jacob Wetterling, like at least the appearance of the man, the physical description. You know, they were not approached by law enforcement, at least none of the ones that we talked to. And that's, you know, in the same county in a, you know, pretty, like you say, pretty rural place. So that some of them went to law enforcement themselves, you know, and they're like teenage boys and they're reading in the news or seeing on TV this case. And they think, wow, that sounds a lot like this guy that jumped out of the bushes at me. And so the information that they were getting in a lot of cases was from kids being like proactive and having the, the like the ability to say, you know, like as like a 12 year old, I think I should call, we should call the cops um, versus what you might expect would happen, which is that the police would go out and try to find these people on their own. And so, yeah. Oh, no. So so it's just um, I think it's it's not. Yeah. Like Samara was saying, I mean, it, it's a serious failure at the time, you know, to not connect the dots. And I think in a larger sense, like this narrative of hindsight is twenty twenty comes up in so many of these old cases. You see it not just in the Jacob Wetterling case, but in you see it in all kinds of reporting on, you know, cases that took decades to solve this narrative of like, well, if we had only had what we have now, then if we had had DNA, if we had had technology, if we had had, um, you know, the connections between different law enforcement agencies, then this never would have happened. And that's, um, it's honestly, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, it seems like it's kind of an excuse. And it's not actually accurate. I think some of the experts we've talked to have said that, like, you know, all that new stuff, it matters, but like it matters so much less than the basic police 101 things that we've known about for 100 years. And this is a thing, reality of unsolved cases is that the public just does not know what those things are. And so it's, you know, everyone wants to give people the benefit of the doubt and say, well, it's probably unsolvable or hindsight is twenty twenty. It could have never been solved until the moment it was. Instead of looking and, and seeing, you know, what is really going on and yeah, there probably are some cases where, you know, they are really difficult to solve. But but this case had so many moments where law enforcement did not do the basic. Law enforcement has always practiced or supposed to practice, you know, knocking on doors, talking to people who might have witnessed something, talking to people who know the people that are the suspects in the case. That kind of level of failure was pretty severe in this case. And especially when you consider the consequences of it. I mean, this is a case, it's not just that they did not find Jacob Wetterling, which would be bad enough. It's that there were innocent people who are caught up in this. You know, there was people whose lives were ruined as a result of this. There was a federal law that was made as a result of this. So like this one failure of this in this one town had these huge implications for the whole country. Yeah. You know, we should say probably at this point that very early in your podcast, you, you know, you're not hiding who the, who the murderer was because there is a confession that's given in court, which you quote from, you know, identify the, the killer and, and well, the abductor and killer and, and sort of explain what had happened in the case. And then as we learn more about the investigation, we begin to see that this, this person was a person of interest at various points through the investigation. And it was, you know, going back to what you're saying about about modern technology, in actuality, I guess DNA played a part in actually giving the police a wedge with which they could get this confession. Yeah, I mean, the DNA was what they used to ta- to get a search warrant. DNA from Heinrich's hair that they'd had since 1990 that they tested very recently against a piece of clothing uh, that belonged to another boy who had been abducted, sexually assaulted, and released in the same county earlier in the year, like a couple months before Jacob was kidnapped. 
you know, so that was what gave them the search warrant to go into this guy's house. And when they did, they didn't find any evidence of him being the person who killed or kidnapped Jacob or uh, but they did find child pornography and they used that to put him in jail. And then eventually this, this man, Danny Heinrich, did agree as part of a plea deal to confess in exchange for not being charged with the murder or the kidnapping itself. So but, you know, when you look at these um, this moment in time, you know, that. There are some very critical moments in this case where things could have gone one way or the other. And it wasn't as though Heinrich was one person out of 10,000 who they thought could have done it. I mean, Heinrich was one of in, on a short list always of suspects. And so I think the, the questions for law enforcement and, you know, some of the more interesting feedback I've been getting on the podcast from law enforcement are, OK, well, what can we learn from this case? You know, why no one wants this outcome. So what are the ways in which we could look at this case and be willing to take a hard look at it to learn from it so that the next time we have some gigantic crime like this, we can not get so lost in, you know, the tens of thousands of leads in this case. Or we can do, you know, what what could we do differently that would, would allow us to collect the right kind of evidence on Danny Heinrich, you know, in the days right after the murder and and get it resolved instead of having it drag on this long. Yeah. And and when you talk about it being a big case, it was a it was a big case in national news. And you you do touch on the on the fact that that, you know, that created a lot of problems for the investigation, that suddenly they had, you know, thousands of pieces of evidence. They had thousands of tips that they had to, to follow up on and leads to go on and to investigate, you know, so therefore complicating process. So. You know, there, there are so many angles that you can go at the story with. It, it, it's pretty incredible. And I think you've done a great job of telling it. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of it. Now, originally, this was planned to be an eight episode uh, series, but but you put in a ninth episode. What, what was the thinking behind that? So Danny Heinrich came forward and confessed kind of right before we were going to release the first episode. And so we changed a bunch of things, you know, kind of where certain things went. And then we've also been doing some reporting over the last six weeks or so since the confession. And we found some things out in the process of that reporting that we want to let people know about. So so that's the reason. And that'll be out um, really soon. So it'll be nine episodes total when all said and done. Okay. And um, what do you think has been the most challenging thing about this, putting this podcast together? I think I think trying to... Um, the scope of it, maybe, you I mean, know, there's, we have so much stuff like tape information documents. I mean, it's a year's worth of reporting will generate so much. Plus, you know, we're looking at, you know, a nearly 30 year period. And actually, we stretch it even further looking at other cases. And so, you know, from a reporter's perspective, the challenge of doing enough reporting to be able to to reach conclusions and and find out solid facts about that time period and then from a production standpoint to be able to make sense of what are you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape and to distill that into a story is a challenge but you know the good thing about this project and the good thing about working where we work is that we are given the time to do this reporting you know we are given the time it's something that does not happen in a lot of news organizations these days much to the public's detriment you know to give reporters months to actually find out what happened in a story that's of great public interest. But then, you know, once you do that, of course, the challenge is how do you 
how do you turn it into something that anyone's going to listen to? And did, did you see an advantage in doing this as a podcast as opposed to some other, you know, I know, online project or a radio report? You know, from pretty early on in when Madeline, so Madeline, like she said, she brought she brought this idea to me and um, I thought it was incredibly interesting. But it was clear that it was an idea that needed a lot of time to tell. There's no way to tell this story in even an hour of radio or a 20-page print story. Like, it's just, it's too big. So a podcast actually made a lot of sense, both because it could we could do hours and hours of, of product, but also I think there's something about how people listen, you know, being able to listen over the course of a couple of months or a month and a half instead of, like, you know, listening to six hours of audio all at once. Um, I think there's a value in, in pacing it that way. So I think the format actually ended up really working well for this story in particular. Because what we hope is that this prompts some serious discussions that are outside of just even the scope of this particular case, you know, so that it will get people thinking about issues like sex offender registries and how we handle sex offenders in this country or issues about cold cases and, you know, what the what is really happening, you know, and like what's the big case in your community that hasn't been solved that everyone says is unsolvable. And, you know, the other other big thing is clearance rates in general. You know, we seem to have, for whatever reason, in this country decided that we are not all that interested in how good of a job law enforcement does when it comes to solving crime. That we're much more interested in the crime rate and other issues about law enforcement, but we, this is an issue that we don't seem to pay very much attention to. So we hope that, you know, by having this unfold week by week, there's time to generate that conversation um, well outside of Minnesota. Now, I know you mentioned a little bit before about feed, some of the feedback that you've gotten from uh, law enforcement. What what has been the general feedback about the podcast? What, what have people saying? In general, the people listening, I mean, the feedback is very positive. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we've gotten feedback from people, you know, across the country, people in other countries saying that they were kind of surprised by how much could go wrong in a case and and also intrigued by this different type of story about crime. You know, this isn't a story about a wrongful conviction. This isn't a story where we're going to, you know, like figure out, a, you know, we're going to solve some mystery. It's not, you know, we're not like pretending to be detectives. You know, that, that this story, I think, appeals to people because it's raising a question that, that I don't think a lot of people are raising. And it's making people think about, you know, what are what are those cases where they live and what are the questions that they should be asking their sheriff? Yeah, definitely has a really good uh, journalistic edge to it, the, the that investigative aspect of it that you're you're trying to hold, you know, government accountable for for the work that they're doing or they're not doing. You know, again, this is this has been a really great experience for me listening to these. It is really exciting because you get to kind of a point and you're like, you know, man, you know, where does the where's the bottom and and how how poorly they they did this case? It just seemed to go episode by episode. It just seemed to be more and more things that they could have done differently that may have gotten a different outcome. Yeah. And the way, you know, that law enforcement is structured in this country, there's not someone that then comes in and does something. So you can have a case like this or any case really that doesn't get solved. And there is no one that comes in and takes it over, you know, as a matter of course. So you're just dealing with whatever agency, you know, where the crime took place, whatever agency has jurisdiction. And you just have to hope that that agency is able is, is is skilled at solving crime because if they're not you know a case can drag on a case cannot be solved and and nothing will happen
Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it, this is this is again speaks to the to the strength of the podcast is that you're able to take your time and tell lots of different stories ar- around it. You, you had an interview in there with uh, one of the 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 victims, somebody who was assaulted when he was a boy. You know, as an adult, talking about you know, his experience and how he felt about the case. And you could see how his life is affected and you saw how the family was affected. I mean, it's not just that this one boy went missing and, and their family was, uh, was impacted. It was the entire community. And, you know, by having something take this so long and, and, you know, not just, not just a matter of why isn't this solved? It's like, what is this unsolved crime really? How is it kind of impacting the community? I think you've done a really good job of telling that story. That was an important part for us, for sure. Well, good. Well, I, I encourage everybody to listen to this. So what's, what's next for In the Dark? Is it, Are you going to do another case? You, you, is this just going to be it? What, what are you thinking about? We don't know at this point. I mean, we're just trying to focus on getting this this last episode done, and then we'll think about it. But, um, yeah, we'll, we definitely um, have a lot of ideas for other stories to pursue. So it's just a question of kind of where to go next. Yeah, yeah, just fi- to find the right to write story uh, to put this this effort in but i you know i think this is i mean they're all different types of stories it doesn't have to be a, an abduction or a, or a true crime it can be you know just the way the government does or doesn't do things uh, there are plenty of stories to tell that yeah. um, and there there's definitely a need for it with the way our journalist uh, journalism system is set up right now so but but thank you very much both of you for coming on um madeline and samara um and people can find this pretty much anywhere where they can get podcast right Right. You can listen in iTunes. You can listen on a lot of other podcast apps or on our website, which is apmreports.org. And I should ask you this. Do you have any special materials on your website? We yes. do. We have a lot so a lot of extra materials. So, you know, videos, documents, I mean, things we've created. Timelines, maps, so much more than it's just in the podcast. Yeah. So a lot to check out there. Cool. Well, you're, you're doing your online due diligence. <laughs> our, our our online team is doing its online due diligence. We have to give credit to them. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. This is uh, this is great. I'm glad you came on the podcast and good luck. I'm, I can't wait to hear the rest of these and I hope you finish up very soon. Thank you. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.